Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello listeners, Darren Lim here with a quick intervention before the episode begins. Most of my chat with Stephen Jedgetts that you're about to hear was recorded on Friday the 11th of August. However, at the end of the substantive discussion, we're going to drop in a quick postscript recorded today, Sunday the 20th of August, following the ALP National Conference and some political events in Vanuatu this past week, so that we're up to date when the episode is published shortly. Thanks as always for listening and back to the original recording. Hello again, everyone. I'm Darren Lim and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. First, I want to thank everyone who reached out after I published the most recent episode. My first, without Alan, uh, your encouragement and support was really, really touching uh, and motivating. uh, And so I'm very grateful for that. And one supporter wrote to me the words, just keep going. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do. I said I'd be trying some different things going forward. And one of those is just to do another episode right on the heels of the last one. It's Friday, the 11th of August today, and joining me is one of the best friends of the podcast. He of the unpronounceable surname, Stephen Jedgetts. Stephen is, of course, the ABC's foreign affairs Asia-Pacific reporter based here in Canberra at Parliament House. Now, I think Stephen is the finest foreign policy journalist in the country, and I know that Alan felt similarly. His reporting has been consistently outstanding and a vital source of oxygen for this podcast. And our mutual esteem is reflected in the fact that Stephen is the only journalist we've had on before. And today I feel very fortunate that he has a little bit of spare time on his hands right now to join me. Stephen, I'm thrilled you're back. Welcome. Thanks, Darren. It's it's great to be back and it's great to see you pressing on with the podcast. Continue on, as they say. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I do want to talk about the news, but we're still catching up after these months away. And so I wanted to kick off the conversation by stepping away from the headlines a little bit. As a reporter, not everything you encounter can make it into a published article or a TV spot. And it's the cutting room floor that interests me today. Can you talk us through an issue that you've been paying personal attention to in recent months, but maybe hasn't quite grabbed consistent headlines, or at least isn't grabbing them yet? Yeah, of course. Um, One issue that I follow very closely and I think is totally fascinating is basically Australia's efforts uh, to to basically establish a new network of security agreements with uh, states in the Pacific. Now, This is something that has drawn a bit of media attention, and I have written on it, as as have others. But um, I I guess if you're asking me to nominate a subject that we can really delve deep into in a way that might be interesting to people who listen to this podcast, but perhaps not as fascinating to everyday punters, as it were, then I'd I'd put this topic near the the top of the list. Absolutely. There are obviously the the main focus has been on Solomon Islands and the the jostling that we've seen there for, for influence between Australia and China in particular, and Australia's efforts to try and stop China emerging as a major security partner for Solomon Islands. But the two countries I'd really like to look at today are Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, because most listeners are probably aware, but perhaps not entirely caught up with some of the details here. So 
Australia is at the moment moving to cement security agreements with or military slash security agreements with both Papua New Guinea and with Vanuatu. And in both countries, they're running into some headwinds, uh, which I think are really fascinating and in some ways telling. So we'll start quickly with PNG. Australia and PNG have been trying to negotiate a uh, full security pact for a little while. Uh, when the new ish government in PNG came into power, uh, those efforts re- received a bit of a shot in the arm. The former foreign minister, maybe returning foreign minister, Justin Chichenko, was a big fan of this idea and negotiations uh, powered ahead. What's happened recently, though, is that PNG, as I'm sure everyone knows, has actually struck an agreement with America, with the USA, the, the Biden administration, with its, for its own military pact. Details of this are now out there. The text is publicly available. Uh, and it has caused an enormous stir in Papua New Guinea, both politically and also to some extent on the streets, where we've seen, particularly at some universities, uh, quite a few protests springing up. Now, without getting into the details of what is in the US-PNG agreement, uh, which is in some ways quite typical for you know US military agreements, basically the reason that people in PNG or some in PNG are so uneasy is because they fear that PNG is effectively abandoning its long tradition of non-alignment, and allowing itself to be drawn into the great game between uh, the US and China in the Pacific, uh, and that potentially it might allow the United States to use PNG as a military base in any potential conflict with China in the future. Is there anything tangible in the agreements that would lead to that risk if you're thinking through that lens? Well, look, you can read the text. It's pretty sweeping. I mean, the the text does seem to open the door towards the United States establishing a military presence in, you know, inside PNG, including at Lombrum and at other places. It contains the usual clauses about uh, US personnel being allowed to be to be given, you know, are essentially given a form of dispensation from local prosecution that instead be subject to prosecution from military courts. I mean, the text is sweeping on the face value reading seems to leave that option wide open. But both the US and the PNG side are insistent that it doesn't automatically allow anything of that nature, that there would need to be specific agreement given by PNG before any sort of uh, US military presence was established either on a semi-permanent or a permanent basis in the country. Both sides are insistent this has got nothing to do with establishing a permanent US presence in PNG. It's instead allowing the United States to pour more resources into the PNG defence infrastructure and into the PNG armed forces, allowing it to engage in more sophisticated training, allowing US Coast Guard vessels to come into PNG waters to involve themselves with the training. There's a separate shiprider agreement. I won't get deep into the weeds on that. But look, basically... We've got a very broadly worded document which has stirred enormous unease in parts of the PNG establishment uh, and in parts, much smaller parts of the broader population. And as a result, James Marape is facing a really serious pushback from elements of the political establishment. And inside his own party, it's not a partisan thing. Largely the opposition, it appears, but there are elements within his own party that also seem a bit uneasy about it as well. And that has basically soaked up uh, a lot of the the bandwidth. Um, And as a result, perhaps inevitably, the PNG-Australia military agreement negotiations have been uh, pushed back or delayed. It was meant to be signed around the middle of this year. And then a few months ago, Marape said, there are certain clauses that we need to revisit because of concerns around sovereignty. I'm paraphrasing. But my read on it is that the uh, potential political and even potential legal and constitutional issues that that, uh, the US-PNG agreement might face 
has essentially forced Marape uh, to put this on the back burner. And that is the source of some frustration in Canberra, uh, despite the fact that Australia is not uneasy about the US-PNG agreement. It's been calling for a US engagement in the region to be intensified. I think this is a good example of where Australian and American interests might well be similar, but they're not perfectly aligned. And in this case, the fact that the US has got the jump on us effectively with this agreement means that our attempts to cement our own agreement with PNG have been delayed. Yeah, I do wonder you know, if maybe Australia is a little bit less jarring for the PNG establishment that had we gone first, those concerns about loss of non-aligned tradition of being pulled into wars and so forth would have been just a bit softened. And so we could have gotten ours through uh, without that backlash, but that now the US has gone first, everything is viewed through that lens and which could endanger the agreement. Yeah, I think whoever whoever went first obviously had the first mover advantage, right? And I think it would have been probably less contentious, an Australian agreement. It was going to be less uh, open to this criticism of, uh, of PNG exposing itself to the, uh, the headwinds and currents of great power contestation. I don't think it would have been totally uncontroversial, and I don't think it will be uncontroversial when it goes, but the sweeping nature of this agreement, typical, yeah, for many US agreements, it's not radically different if you look at some of the clauses that you'd find, for example, in the US-Philippines agreements that exist. Uh, but they are very sweeping. They are very broad. They're not the sort of thing that the PNG political establishment has had to really grapple with before. It's unsurprising, I think, in that sense that it's contentious and it's unsurprising that that order, 1-2, not 2-1, throws up some obstacles and difficulties for Australia. Is there any evidence that Beijing is inserting itself into this process and to protect its interests? Well, interestingly, uh, and close observers of Australian foreign policy might have seen this uh, crop up a, a little while ago. There was a curious episode about two months ago uh, when the DCA was, was signed, when a number of journalists, including myself, were essentially sent what purported to be a draft copy of the uh, USPNG agreement. Now, the person who contacted both us and other journalists around, at least around sort of 15 or 20 by my count, perhaps more, purported to be a public servant somewhere in the PNG system, concerned about PNG's growing uh, alignment with the United States, worried that it was being drawn into great power conflict, worried that it was being manipulated by the United States, and um, basically urging us to publish a story on the uh, the draft text. Draft text was was authentic. We didn't know it at the time, but it turned out it was authentic. We have quite a few reasons to doubt, however, that the person who, or the entity, the individual who contacted us was in fact a PNG public servant. They refused to identify themselves, um, even off the record. They refused to provide any evidence of who they claimed to be. There were patterns of speech that were curious, uh, and put it this way, certainly not typical for, for someone in the PNG establishment. And there was a certain level of sophistication about the way that they contacted journalists that led some of us to suspect uh, that it may have been a third party involved. Now, we don't know who. I have no firm evidence of who this, who this person or who this individual might have been working for. Um, there's been some speculation that's been put out there that perhaps a foreign intelligence service who might be hostile to uh, the US uh, DCA might have been involved. Obviously, some people have pointed the finger at uh, the Chinese who have obviously got their own reasons to be hostile to this uh, DCA. I have no evidence of that. I'm certainly not going to make that uh, allegation because I simply can't back it up. 
Um, but I think there is at the very least some evidence <laughs> that outside players were attempting to influence both the political debate inside PNG, the broader media debate around the DCA, ultimately with the aim of disrupting or killing off uh, the agreement. Well, before we turn to Vanuatu, just sort of zooming out, do you think, you know, for whatever reason, there is enough political ballast to get this through, whether it's, you know, just the insistence of, of, of the Prime Minister or whether it's a general sort of shift in the politics and the foreign policy um, around the balance between the US and China? Like, do you think it will be safe? I mean, it looks like it will probably get through. I haven't dug into this in the last, say, three weeks or so. So things may have moved in the last three or four weeks in a way that that uh, I'm blissfully unaware of at this stage. Um, the consensus amongst informed observers and participants a few weeks ago was that uh, Marape would be able to push this through Parliament. Whether it faces a constitutional challenge is another interesting question, and that seems a little more uncertain. It's worth remembering that PNG courts have weighed in on these questions before, uh, including with Australia. But the consensus relatively recently was that Marape both had the will and the political capital to push this through and, to, and that it will go through sometime later this month. I think Australia will be hoping that it goes through and goes through pretty painlessly so they can quickly turn the focus of uh, the Prime Minister and the uh, PNG establishment to our own defence agreement with PNG. Actually, one more question then. What... If that's true, why? What distinguish or makes PNG different to other you know, nations in the region um, where this kind of thing might be more difficult? Is it sort of the long history, positive political relations between Australia and PNG that we've discussed in the podcast? Is it a strategic sort of geostrategic calculation that PNG just structurally wants to be in this position, uh, even though that might put it more in opposition with Beijing? Is it failures of Chinese foreign policy? Why would we put them in that column if we if we if we were putting countries in columns? <laughs> I, I don't know if I would put them in any column because in some ways the the objections in PNG to U.S. foreign policy, you know, are, are often more strident in PNG than than you find in other countries. There's probably a larger body of people among the elite, in particular, who remain very suspicious of U.S. strategy in the region, who are quite pro-China in the sense that they believe that China has no particular strategic aims in the region beyond, you know, development, mutual benefit. And if you're asking me why PNG has done this when others haven't, I think it's simply a fact that PNG, unlike most Pacific nations, has a standing military force. And it has enormous, in some cases, gaping needs for modernization, both of infrastructure uh, and of armament. So the US has something to offer in this space, which is very interesting and potentially very useful to PNG, which is frankly just less relevant to countries that don't maintain standing armies. And of course, most Pacific nations don't maintain standing military forces. So I think it's less about a certain ideology or a certain standing in, P in PNG. I think it's less about PNG being in one column or another. I think it's more the fact that it's got a real need and the US is offering to fill it. And at least James Marape believes that he can do this without being drawn into that broader contest. Uh, now, whether that's true or not, we'll have to wait and see. But it seems that's the belief in PNG, at least amongst the government, and they're determined to stick it through. Fascinating. Okay, well, Vanuatu, what's the situation there? Perhaps even murkier in a way. And I'm, now I'm realising why there's perhaps little appetite for these stories, because it takes... <laughs> 
20 minutes to explain the bare bones of them before you get even deeper into the weeds. On this podcast, Stephen, there is enough appetite. I am fascinated by it. So I'm glad the uh, the fine details of Pacific geopolitics have, have got a happy home on Australia and the world. Look, something fascinating happened last year. Penny Wong uh, went to Vanuatu in, uh, I think it was early December, from memory, late last year, not long after the Labor Party won one office, only about six months after that one office. And to the surprise of many observers, managed to strike a security agreement with the government of Ishmael Kalsakau, a very new government uh, in Vanuatu. Kalsakau had won power, I'm trying to remember, I think it was only four or six weeks earlier. I'd need to check my diary. It was a raw and very new government. Gosh, okay, very new. Uh, and observers were surprised when they pronounced during this visit that uh, not only had they managed to finally agree to a security pact, something that had been in the works for from memory four years or so, um, but going nowhere under the, the former government, um, but also that they were going to sign it that very day. And they did, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister. Prime Minister Kalsakau and Foreign Minister Wong both put their signatures to it that day in Vanuatu. And it was hailed, understandably, as a substantial strategic victory for Australia as part of this broader game of whack-a-mole that we're engaged in across the Pacific, where we are basically engaged in strategic denial when it comes to China's attempts to embed itself as a substantive defence or security partner with, uh, with countries across the, the South Pacific. Now, what happened, it turns out, is that Kalsakau had basically pressed ahead without getting any sort of agreement, um, not only from his own party, but even from his own ministers, including his own foreign minister. That meant that Australia had very opportunistically and very understandably, you know, swooped uh, at a moment that allowed it to achieve something it had been hoping to do for a while, but, but it also substantively left Australia pretty politically exposed. And perhaps unsurprisingly, what we've seen over the subsequent eight months or so is pushback inside Vanuatu, in particular from the foreign minister who has made it very clear privately and uh, to some extent publicly that he is uneasy about elements of this treaty. He believes, again, that Vanuatu is essentially placing itself in the broader sort of American-Australian column, uh, that it's abandoning its own long and proud tradition of non-alignment, uh, and that uh, the language needs to be substantially reworked to ensure that uh, Vanuatu's sovereignty is protected. So Australia has basically spent the last sort of six to eight months trying to finesse this through the system of Vanuatu without a whole lot of success. Last I heard, well, the agreement was effectively going to have to be reworked. And now we have the additional complicating <laughs> factor uh, of political unrest in Vanuatu, which is not at all unusual. It's sort of a, uh, a permanent feature of, of Vanuatu politics, which is very fluid and unpredictable, um, with Kalsakau essentially facing a, a no-confidence motion not long ago, only a few days ago. It was then deferred, so we'll have to wait a couple of weeks to, to wait and see what happens. But one of the reasons that uh, he faced this no-confidence motion, not the main one, but one of them was that he had abandoned uh, Vanuatu's uh, long and proud tradition of independence in foreign policy by signing this agreement. Uh, and simultaneously, Australia's process of ratification is basically, we've, we've been forced to, to hit pause. So I understand, for example, that the treaty that looks at these committees, uh, sorry, the committee that looks at these treaties still hasn't uh, begun the process of examining it. It simply hasn't been brought on because the Foreign Minister's Office, DFAT, knows that it's uh, in no position to bring it on because the situation in Vanuatu is so fluid and, and dangerous. So two sort of headline agreements, one not yet signed, one signed but not yet ratified, both facing substantial headwinds. Both may well end up being both signed and ratified 
but it's a reminder of just how difficult and fraught this space is for Australia. Yeah, and you can't help but reflect that had China done what you're describing, you know, we would have lost our minds. Um, and of course, there are huge differences in process, and that's one of the main arguments that I think we are making to the region. Like, it is transparent. Everyone can see what we're doing. We encourage debate, and we're not looking to, 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 to yeah, get pull the wool over anyone's eyes. And so our process is different. But you know, when you zoom out far enough, or if you're coming from the perspective of, of within the region, and you're just seeing large countries come in and quickly try and sew things up when the, the moment strikes, you could see why, the, you know, that whether it's cynicism or just like we're going, we treat the all great powers as, as great powers, Australia included, that that's an attitude they would take. We don't look that different if you, if you squint at least. See, Australia's argument, and I have a level of sympathy for this argument, is that it's unreasonable to compare us to China or even the United States because we are, as we constantly and relentlessly put it, a member of the Pacific family rather than an outside great power. And that's the argument we've seen in Solomon Islands as well. Australia is saying that security should be the responsibility of the quote-unquote Pacific family. That very much includes us and New Zealand does not include China. doesn't include the United States as well, but that's a slightly uh, tangential question that we can get into. So look, I think Australia wants to present itself as materially different in nature, in quality, uh, and just in terms of our broad history to outside powers. Some in the Pacific are very sympathetic to that argument. They really do see us like, um, you know, we're obviously a member of PIF. They see us as a long-standing and valuable partner. And there are deeper reservoirs of strategic trust between, you know, Australia and Pacific Island nations typically than there are between those nations and China. But other elites in the Pacific are not inclined to view Australia in that way, even though we are, of course, a member of PIF and do tend to characterise us publicly and privately as just another outside self-interested power intent on cementing our interests and position in the region in, in that way should be regarded much more like a, a nation like the US or China than uh, a fellow Pacific Island member interested only in stability uh, and peace in the region. So that, of course, is the uh, the job of Australian diplomats to convince Pacific elites that we're uh, the first. Okay. Well, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, just it is unique challenge uh, that you you, you want to take these opportunities when they present themselves, but you have to be so sensitive to how it can be perceived. And I think I understand why, for what it's worth, uh, not the foreign minister needs my imprimatur in the least, but um, um, I understand why the foreign minister and the Department of Foreign Affairs swooped on that opportunity when it was offered up with, by Kalsakow. I don't know, but I suspect whether maybe they were taken perhaps a little bit by surprise. Yes, he's got a long tradition of being quite pro-Australia, but I don't know. Do you, would they necessarily have expected that offer to be put so quickly? Um, I haven't been able to winkle that out. But look, I understand why they jumped at it. We're probably fully aware of the risks and it would be difficult to secure ratification. But it is a reminder that uh, there are other ways you can go about it. And perhaps that route of building up consensus within the government first and then signing it down the track may have been preferable. Yeah. And if you have a situation which, uh, in which an observer like you can use the verb swoop, um, then you're walking on thin ice. Um, you don't want to allow it to be characterised in that way, even if really 
you know, when you go into the guts of it, there's it's reasonable and it's transparent and it's all the things that you know that we claim that we claim I think do you know uphold. Nevertheless, that that verb you know, swooping in doesn't it, it just it, it it opens you up to those who would be skeptical, whether in good faith or for their own reasons. Um, to make that criticism, which illustrates the challenge. And look, this is a challenge that China is facing, has faced across the region now for the for a decade or more. Uh, yeah, it comes in and 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 does business, does political business, does economic business in ways that that invite, um, and often I think for very good reason, because less transparency, perhaps more corruption, and so forth is involved. Um, but it invites that backlash, and 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 you've seen wave elections and political fates decided upon that. So th- this is as it always was. Yeah. Anyway, fascinating. Well, if we move away from the Pacific and actually I want to do a similar uh, exercise and talk about something that is not yet gaining many headlines and may not, um, but is very interesting. Um, And it's a conversation, it's about here at home in Australia, and it's a conversation that dovetails very nicely with this idea of domestic pushback that you've described in both PNG and Vanuatu. And it starts with the, 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 the observation that next week uh, from the 17th to the 19th of August, we have the Labor Party's national conference uh, in Brisbane. And the reason that, that conference is interesting to this podcast is that there is some evidence or some at least reporting from recent months of growing discontent within the ALP about AUKUS and the deepening of the alliance relationship. We, of course, had the bilateral OSMIN 2 plus 2 meetings in Brisbane late last month, in late July, and there were agreements coming out of that that expand the footprint of the US military in Australia via upgrading our northern bases. We're going to see some US intelligence analysts embedded uh, here in Canberra, and we're going to fast-track domestic missile production. These are the, the headlines that I recall seeing. And I've seen some, you know, criticism um, of just that ministerial agreement, even though there was nothing particularly earth shattering there, but feeding into a broader criticism of AUKUS in particular. You know, what are you seeing uh, on, on the, the nature and extent of this sort of grassroots discontent with the Alliance and, and with AUKUS? Look, it's difficult to gauge the breadth of opposition to AUKUS in the ALP because the membership is diffuse, right? And it's not a large number of people, but it's varied and, you know, you can't ring all of them up. It's certainly true that there is substantive grassroots unease, at the very least, in the ALP towards elements of AUKUS. Um, We've seen some branches essentially pass motions against AUKUS. We've seen both Queensland and Victoria uh, looking to debate, or in some cases debating motions on AUKUS. The Queensland ALP conference uh, refused to endorse a pro-AUKUS motion that was put up. So you've also got, you know, just low-level grumbling uh, from some grassroots members of the ALP who are either, in some cases, ringing up journalists or posting online, basically complaining, one, that, you know, that AUKUS is a bad idea. A lot of these people are understandably, um, you know, fixated by some of the arguments that Paul Keating has made against AUKUS and believe there's a lot of merit to those, to those arguments. Uh, but two, uh, there's a sense of anger that uh, the ALP caucus wasn't even given a chance to debate this, uh, let alone the membership, which have, was never allowed to touch it with a with a 90-foot pole. You know, the fact that the decision to back in AUKUS was made with lightning speed by a small handful of then ALP frontbenchers, opposition frontbenchers, uh, when uh, when Morrison briefed Wong, Albanese and Miles back when AUKUS was, uh, was first about to be announced. How serious is the opposition? Look, 
I, I, I think there is a big gap between the membership and the backbench. There have been vanishingly small numbers of ALP MPs who are even privately critical of it, at least to journalists. We've only really seen one MP, Josh Wilson, publicly raise concerns. He did so in Parliament. There was a bit of a media storm about that, largely because it was such an isolated incident. There were two or three other ALP members who were quoted as raising questions in caucus. Unsurprisingly, all the journos then rang them up. All three of them basically said, no, 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 we support AUKUS. We're entirely supportive. I was just asking questions, hashtag. So there is so so there is a gap, I guess, between where the caucus is right now and where the membership is. There seems to be a drive uh, to ensure that uh, this is not raised at national conference in a particularly substantive way. I'm told the Prime Minister, uh, and this has been reported by others as well, has made it very clear internally that he does not want to see a messy uh, public debate on this that in any way embarrasses either the government or the United States or that potentially endangers AUKUS in, in any way. And it seems like, I'm going largely off the reporting and a few conversations I've had, that that strategy has largely been successful uh, and that it will not blossom into a, into a full-blown stout on the floor. But it is interesting and one to watch, I think. Uh, I think it's worth monitoring where the grassroots go on this. And one thing that has been raised repeatedly by some ALP members is that it could really sap some of the enthusiasm of those sort of old-time ALP members who've been in branches for decades and whom the party still relies upon to hand out, you know, how to votes on the day. The question is whether that sense of unease or distrust or frustration might see them drop off before election day. Yeah, that was going to be my point that you could absolutely imagine how this played out. You know, Keating gives this speech in March. He describes AUKUS as the worst decision by the ALP since Billy Hughes tried to introduce conscription you know, 100 plus years ago. And to those segments of the, at the branches who are older, and that's quite a lot of them, I think, you know, they're like, well, you know, Paul, our hero, um, is saying that they'll, they'll take up the, the, you know, the torch and, and, and fight the good fight. But, you know, the modern ALP, the MPs, staffers, the state level apparatus, you know, I, they don't see Keating as being a credible figure anymore, it doesn't seem like. And I've not seen any meaningful evidence of anyone, any position of power that is seriously opposed. But, you know, the reason I raised it is because there are these glimmers and, and it's I think it's worth paying attention to where they might go. And I can't help myself, Stephen, I've got to, I feel... Alan's absence right now, because there is a historical uh, anecdote that I want to that I want to um, introduce, and it comes from a book called Fear of Abandonment: Australia in the World Since 1942. That you might have you might have read. This is where Alan. This is where Alan would uh, would ever so charmingly <laughs> put in a plug <laughs> in a way that only Alan could. <laughs> Exactly. And I, I, I want to carry on that tradition of plugging his book. So for those that have the updated edition, it's on page 179. Um, and it, it details um, what is called the MX missile crisis. And so if you'll give me two minutes to, to tell the story, Stephen, it's a fun one. And it is of some relevance, I think. So what happens is the Fraser government, the conservative coalition Fraser government agrees in 1981 to let the Americans test this new missile called the MX. And the agreement was to allow them to land off the Tasmanian coast, but in our economic waters. Hawke is then elected in 1983, so the change in government. And just a few days before he's elected, of course, Ronald Reagan gives his famous evil empire speech um, about the Soviet Union. And so it's a very tense geopolitical time, right? There's two nuclear powers with a pretty fraught relationship. And in Australia, you've got a strong 
groundswell of public opinion in favor of disarmament and against you know nuclear uh, weapons uh, and 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 you know midnight oil song think of us forces and these are quite prominent issues inside the labor party uh, especially in the left and if, of course if you go across the tasman to new zealand you'll see new zealand leave you know the anzus alliance in 1985 after it refuses um a u.s ship uh, who wants to dock um, on the basis that it might be carrying nuclear weapons or might be nuclear powered so you have a conservative government policy which hawkeye presumed didn't even know about um, when he was in opposition that he inherits and so there's a fun parallel to some extent with, with AUKUS. now he tells the americans he's willing to let the tests proceed but he does want to keep everything quiet and there was indeed a memo that i saw that from some committee that was deciding upon this of what to do if it did get out well it does get out and it gets out as hawk is traveling to the us via europe and there's a report in a newspaper which then creates a huge backlash inside the labor party who view this as a destabilizing new element in what is an already very you know um, tense geopolitical moment. Now, um, Alan quotes Hawke in his memoirs as describing this backlash as, quote, a bout of residual anti-Americanism and pacifist naivete, which is a delicious quote. But at the time, it was powerful enough, apparently, to generate the prospect of a special conference by the ALP that would overturn the decision. And so Alan describes Hawke's response as an embarrassing backflip. He gives a press conference in Brussels, um, in Europe, where he sort of essentially walks away from the decision. And he ultimately is saved somewhat by the US Secretary of State, George um, Schultz, who says, well, actually, we didn't need the Australian borders in the first place, and so it's all, all fine. But, you know, this story is, is sort of framed as part of a narrative in Alan's book as being about the Hawke government trying to balance the concerns of the membership in a very tense geopolitical moment across the 80s with the need to reassure Washington that Australia did have an enduring commitment to the alliance at a time when the Kiwis, you know, were going in a different direction. And so that story, that MX missile crisis story sort of is the genesis of this interest. Like what would it take? Maybe it's not AUKUS right now, but is there a scenario that we can imagine that's somewhat plausible in the future where there is a grassroots movement inside the party that materially bubbles up to the leadership and actually constrains it in meaningful ways in its defense policy or its foreign policy? Maybe structurally it's a different time that wouldn't happen, but I do, I do wonder about the hypothetical. Any, any reaction there? Yeah, that's a it's a great reflection, Darren, and I love that story. I think I do recall it, but it's a, it's great to to to, to hear it again. Look, uh, there are a few ironies that are present here. I think, particularly perhaps if you draw that comparison back to the eighties. The first one to make is that uh, you know it's been pretty widely reported. I haven't really followed this up on myself, but credible people have reported that. Ironically, perhaps, the left has actually finally managed to wrestle control in, in the ALP conference. So the left has around 49 or 50% of, of delegates at this uh, upcoming conference. And the right, uh, according to uh, Phil Curry and others, slightly less, around uh, 45%. The remaining are un, uh, unaligned, basically, but they're, they're not going to they're not going to team up with the uh, with the right to, to sort of wrestle back control. They're, they're largely left leaning. So the uh, left has finally got its hands on a prize that it's wanted for a long time. And perhaps there's a certain irony here in that the main thing that the government, including a prime minister drawn from the, from the New South Wales left, the main thing he has to do is make sure that his own faction doesn't embarrass him uh, on the floor. 
there was a, a great uh, line in, uh, in, a, in a report by Phil Curry, actually, in the Financial Review. I, I penned it down here, saying, sources from the right say it's ironic that the left, to which Anthony Albanese and Foreign Minister Penny Wong belong, has finally attained the numbers it has so long craved, but now has to engineer ways to defeat itself. Which is a wonderful, wonderful line, um, because what you've really got, again, is less of a factional stout and really a stoush between, you know, elements of the membership and the executive branch that happens to now find itself in power and shepherding through a, uh, a policy which is deeply contentious uh, to the very base from which they have sprung. So ironies upon ironies, Darren. Well, and Albanese has come a long way from his 1980s roots in contrast, I guess, to Paul Keating. Yeah, well, I can't remember who made this observation. Uh, it was a Labour old hand of some description, but it stuck with me, saying that uh, if you had told someone in, say, the uh, <laughs> you know the late '80s, for example, that Anthony Albanese, the the young you know tyro of the uh, New South Wales left, with you know with, with the roots in the anti-nuclear movement, was uh, championing a nuclear-powered submarine program with the United States, whilst Paul Keating, the doyen and demigod of the New South Wales right, was constantly trying to squash the left on these matters, now leading an internal grassroots crusade against him as a former prime minister. He said if you'd argued back that, say, in 1987, you would need to get your head checked, um, that no one could possibly have imagined this uh, playing out 30 years down the track. Uh, and yet, here we are. Yeah, ironies upon ironies. Well, I, to wrap this up, I wanted to return to your point about the lack of consultation. I really want to channel Alan here because his indignation was truly magnificent when AUKUS was first announced um, and, and has been was consistent you know, in the months that followed about the lack of public debate and consultation. Um, and so I think it's worth sort of revisiting that just for a moment and to acknowledge how big a deal AUKUS potentially is. And it's a big deal because it's a big shift in defence procurement. You know, we've got a brand new military platform coming our way. It's a big deal because of its budgetary scale, just billions upon billions of dollars that are going to be spent. And it's a big deal because it potentially marks an evolution or even a concrete shift in our strategic personality. Right, that we're going to be able to project power much further afield and potentially be on the front lines you know, in something like a conflict in the Taiwan Strait. And you know, we've talked about the lack of debate and consultation under the previous government, but that also was true inside the Labor Party itself. As you said, very few people in the room when the ALP was briefed. Now, look, you can say they were snookered and, and they really didn't have any good political options at the time, but to sort of get in behind it um, and make the best of it now that you know, that they are in government. And look, I've, you know, I can see the logic of AUKUS. Um, you know, I think it can work, um, especially if we never get to stage three, as I've said on the podcast before. But it, you know, in the context of, of us studying domestic politics, domestic political constraints, and the beginnings, perhaps, of a movement, a grassroots movement. It's, it's I think it's worth sort of you know, revisiting that point that this is a that this did come about was sort of foisted upon um, the nation, and as a result, the parties involved without that discussion. I think the almost entirely unique thing about AUKUS is the utterly extraordinary secrecy uh, that led up to its announcement by Morrison, uh, Johnson, and Biden. So I understand the arguments for why that secrecy was necessary. And Scott Morrison has elaborated on this. He said, if we had let it slip at all, what was happening? If Emmanuel Macron had got wind of it at all, he would 
instantly have been on the phone to the White House demanding that uh, the Biden administration back away, uh, threatening all sorts of horrible consequences if they didn't, and using every scrap of his power to try and ensure that the idea was stillborn. And Morrison has made it very clear in his interviews on on this um, that uh, his main concern was that, that Biden might go to water, that Biden might waver, weigh up the possible consequences, weigh up the benefits and decide that maybe it would be better just to defer it with the inevitable consequence that, of course, it, it never actually comes to reality. So I can understand the argument for why utter secrecy was necessary and why the ALP was informed only at the last minute, you know, about 15 hours, I think it was, or 18 hours before it was announced, perhaps less, and why parliamentary debate in the lead up to that announcement was uh, was simply impossible. And I can understand why Labor, when confronted when, with this decision, felt like it had to give a yes or a no immediately. They understood, I think Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong and others would have understood immediately the weight of this decision, but also the circumstances that it was delivered to them with. I think the, 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 the fundamental complaint we have seen from not just some grassroots members of the ALP, but also from several commentators and not least um, Alan, of course, was that that dynamic, that instant, deeply secretive bipartisan pact, essentially locked in AUKUS and simultaneously eclipsed any possibility of meaningful debate because it became a fait accompli almost immediately. And it's a reminder of the way that bipartisanship, and this is not necessarily a good or a bad thing, it's just a brute reality, particularly of Australian politics, how political bipartisanship on a core question can quickly constrict or largely extinguish debate because rightly or wrongly, so much of our national debate is really conducted in federal parliament. And when you have both parties in lockstep on something, that inevitably closes down any channels of meaningful parliamentary debate. It means that the debate essentially occurs on the political margins, you know, in the pages of newspapers, in journals, on podcasts, perhaps in the odd press conference given by, for example, the Greens. But it's really on the margins. Listeners, as foreshadowed at the beginning of the episode, we're dropping in a quick postscript recorded today, Sunday the 20th of August. Stephen, since we recorded on Friday the 11th, there was a vote of no confidence held in Vanuatu's parliament, and the ALP had their national conference. So let's get up to date. Let's start with Vanuatu. What happened there? Yeah, I think worth just recapping, um, given uh, so much of our conversation focused on news events and news does what news always does, which is move on pretty quickly. Um, but basically, there was a, a no confidence motion uh, and Ishmael Kausakau, the uh, prime minister, survived it, but by the thinnest of margins. So the no confidence motion won 26 votes. Uh, that was ahead of the 23 votes against but one vote short of the 27 needed, which is an absolute majority, uh, that's required to remove a prime minister in the parliament, which has 52 seats. 
uh, one seat at the moment. Uh, if you're wondering why that doesn't add up quite, is it's because one seat is vacant and there was another MP who was basically absent because he was ill. So that is about as narrow a victory, if you want to call it that, for Ishmael Kausakau as you could imagine. Uh, he does remain Prime Minister, but it is yet another reminder of just how parlous and perilous his position is. Yes, this is pretty normal for, for politics in Vanuatu, at least over the last couple of decades. But uh, given that the uh, Australian security agreement was one of the issues cited by the opposition as they attempted to remove him, given he's survived by exactly one vote and given there's every prospect, the opposition may well try again. Uh, and given the agreement still hasn't been ratified by either country, I think it probably just reinforces the point I made that the agreement may well have been signed or has been signed. That doesn't mean that it becomes a reality. Has there been any word from the Prime Minister on plans to adjust his policy platform and to respond to some of this discontent, for example, in revisiting the security agreement with Australia? Not that I've heard. Um, now, I haven't been in the country, so I'm only really relying on what I've heard from other people uh, close to the action and uh, from the press conference that, uh, that the Prime Minister gave. There has been a big reshuffle. So, for example, you saw the Foreign Minister quit his post, uh, which could well have consequences for the uh, security pact. Uh, but that was done to try, as part of an internal reshuffle to try and, you know, to bag up uh, Kalsakal's position. The Prime Minister has sort of furiously denied the fact or denied the allegation that uh, that his movements on the security pact and his decision to sign it has in any way compromised Vanuatu's independence uh, or undermined its standing with uh, other partners like China. Uh, he made the point that uh, there have been more visitors to Vanuatu uh, since he took office than there were under the, the former government. Uh, so he doesn't seem to be for turning. Uh, but look, I, I think this is still a very live question, uh, particularly when it comes to the uh, the Council of Ministers under the Prime Minister, as they try and, you know, pick their way through very, very difficult political terrain. Um, I don't know what will happen to the security pact, but uh, you'd have to say at the very least, its uh, ultimate fate remains absolutely up in the air. Okay, well, let's then turn to the ALP National Conference, which wrapped up yesterday in Brisbane. We wondered a little while ago when we recorded about how much the grassroots opposition to AUKUS might bubble up at the conference. So how did things play out? Well, look, no, it really did bubble up. There was, you know, a proper old-fashioned ding-dong or debate at the, uh, the ALP National Conference over AUKUS, probably more debate on AUKUS than almost any other uh, internal issue that was hammered out, um, you'd have to say. Now, uh, in the end, the, the Prime Minister has won the day on this, as everyone expected. Uh, we do have AUKUS embedded in the ALP party platform. Uh, and when the Prime Minister gave a speech essentially explaining and endorsing his position and the government's position on AUKUS, he received uh, an ovation from perhaps, it's hard to say, perhaps, you know, 80% or perhaps 75% of the delegates there. But there was a very noisy and fairly substantial minority, perhaps around 20 or 25% of the delegates who were there, who were not only opposed to AUKUS, but who were determined to do everything possible uh, to uh, highlight their opposition to it. Um, so we saw in particular uh, Labour for the Environmental Action Network, uh, a new group, Labour Against, uh, Against War, 
all not only speaking out against AUKUS during the debate, and in some cases hectoring the defence minister as he uh, offered a offered a strident defence of AUKUS uh, on the floor, but also holding multiple press conferences uh, to uh, highlight internal opposition uh, to the pact, accusing the government uh, of tying the Australia to the US and um, you know and abandoning Australia's independence. So it's uh, it, it's it's certainly been a pretty bruising debate. In the end, the government has carried the day. The opposition that we've seen on the grassroots hasn't been substantial enough to derail the AUKUS pact. Uh, but you do clearly have, you know, among the delegates and among the grassroots, at the very least, a substantial minority who remain deeply unhappy about AUKUS and who are outright opposed to it. And the interesting question, as we discussed, is what impact will that have, in particular, uh, when Labor tries to gather its grassroots strength together for the next federal election? Will that have an impact on turnout? Will that have an impact on volunteering? Uh, Will it sap its strength at the next election? It'll be fascinating to see. Okay, Stephen, that's really interesting. And perhaps the seeds have been sown for growing opposition to the future, or maybe this will stabilise and remain within the control of the leadership of the party. So we'll have to keep an eye on it for sure. Uh, And with that, let's return to the original recording to wrap up the episode. Well, we've been here for a while, but I am quite enthusiastic about charging on, and this will be as long as it needs to be, and our listeners will keep with us or they won't, um, but it's fun to... I'm having such a great time. Apologies, listeners. I do not I do not blame you if you drop off. <laughs> I'm having a great time, and that's part of uh, what keeps me going. So let's do let's do a handful more things. Maybe we'll... We won't... I won't call them a lightning round, but we'll, we'll look to, to clear them in good order. The first is an Albanese visit to China. I discussed this on the pod that was released a few days ago. Walter asked me, are the Bali tariff restrictions being removed enough to facilitate an Albanese visit later in the year? I think they are. Um, What's your read on this situation? Yeah, I'm a, a little bit out of the loop because I've been off work for for a little while, but um, my read as of at least a few weeks ago was that it was still probably quite a bit more likely than not. I think the Bali decision, as you and Walter discussed last week, um, is probably enough to get it over the line. I think if the Bali decision hadn't happened, then it would have been harder. Um, Interestingly, uh, Anthony Albanese said uh, not that long ago that he was hoping to meet potentially with Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the, the G20 in New Delhi. Now, it's not clear, at least to me, and I because I've been off, I haven't had, really had a chance to dig into this. It's not clear to me whether that would be in addition to a trip to, to Beijing or instead of it. Um, the Beijing trip has been pretty widely speculated to be most likely to occur in, in October. So would, would, would he uh, have flagged that if the trip was still going ahead? It's just not clear to me. But I guess it's entirely plausible still that, uh, that Anthony Albanese meets Xi Jinping on the sidelines of, uh, of the G20 and then, uh, and then heads to uh, Beijing as well. Then uh, the uh, other question is, uh, would Australia, you know, would Australia insist on on more movement uh, on some of those really fraught, difficult and distressing consular cases before the Prime Minister agrees to go? In particular, we've just seen, of course, a, a really harrowing statement from uh, Chung Lei, who's now marking three years in, uh, in detention in China. I simply don't have visibility on this. I don't know if it's going to be a condition. Obviously, the government would desperately hope for movement on this. My guess, and it's no more than a guess, is that it will not be or would not be a precondition to a trip to China. But I think it's safe to assume that should it happen, that that would be very much at the top of the Prime Minister's agenda 
Uh, and I suspect Australia may well imply that um, or make the argument that, you know, further restoration of ties in some ways remains hostage to, uh, to those who remain essentially victims of hostage diplomacy. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, just a few days ago, the government released a new international development policy. Have you had a read of it yet? Any any initial reactions? I'm going. I'm planning on doing a podcast dedicated to it uh, very soon. But while I've got you here, I thought I'd ask uh, for any reactions. You were watching the lead up. It took a bit longer to be released than we expected. But yeah, what, what were your thoughts? Uh, look, no, I think uh, it's a it's not to be critical in any way. It's not a particularly remarkable document. Um, I think the emphasis that we see on where wherever possible, you know, uh, employing locals to do these jobs um, in you know stark contrast to unnamed others, <laughs> namely China, um, is an unsurprising but uh, but commendable sort of emphasis in the review. Only one other observation that I'd make. It was interesting in the development finance review, which was uh, also released, uh, that there was a, a reference to the fact that rising interest rates, as well as rising debt levels in Pacific Island countries, uh, do risk hobbling the uh, AIFFP, which is Australia's sort of flagship effort to get into infrastructure in a big way in the Pacific. I think that is a bit of a sleeper issue. It's a real conundrum for the government, and it's uh, an issue to watch very closely. Yeah, the only... Not being a development policy specialist, the one thing that jumped out to me upon reflection um, is how much the document sort of represents in black and white, written down on a piece of paper, a lot of the values and, and philosophy or theory of foreign policy that we've gotten from the government since it took office. And look, it's only covers a segment of Australian foreign policy, the development segment, but you see, you know, climate change front and center, you see this notion of, of, of genuine partnerships based on respect and listening and learning from each other, a hallmark of, of, of Penny Wong's approach to diplomacy. Uh, and you see the elevation of First Nations perspectives. Um, and so these are not just things that I think we want to make hallmarks of our development policy. They are hallmarks of Australia's foreign policy under an Albanese government more broadly. And look, we haven't got a white paper. Obviously, the Defence Strategic Review um, is a different document. It, it, it's, it's designed to do different things. So this is a really good place or an opportune place for the, for the government to put its stamp of what matters to it, albeit in the context of development. But I think it, its significance goes beyond that. And it's a document that will live beyond its sort of narrow development focus as sort of an anchor point um, or a um, guidepost um, for the bureaucracy and for the world more broadly about what they think about the world and, and, and Australia's place in it. One more thing before we, we get to recommendations, um, something I'd like to do with guests um, as I can into the future is just simply ask them for their own personal reflections on Alan. You knew, you knew Alan somewhat, so I am just invite you to share in a memory or, or, or a perspective on, on him. Look, just, just briefly, um, Darren, and there are many listeners of the podcast uh, who were closer to Alan than I was, uh, though I admired him greatly and always valued his feedback, counsel um, and advice. Um, but one of the things that has just struck me is it's just I've just been amazed at just how often he crops up in conversations I've had with people in, in the foreign affairs space uh, since his passing. Um, and I've just discovered that people who I had no idea knew Alan. You know, it turns out, for example, he was a close mentor of theirs, you know, 20 years ago, uh, that he read the draft of their book five years ago, um, without naming names, you know, that, that uh, he provided invaluable political counsel uh, to them on foreign policy issues 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing to me uh, in the wake of his depth, how indelible his impact was, not just on 
the national debate, but how indelible and wide his impact was on the human beings, um, I guess a relatively small circle of human beings who together debate, decide and determine what Australia's foreign policy might look like. I guess I knew that ahead of time, but it has really been drawn into sharp relief in the wake of his uh, of his untimely death. And I think it is uh, just a powerful reminder of uh, how badly he will be missed. Thank you. Thank you. Reading, listening and watching. Stephen, what have you been reading, listening and watching in recent weeks? Uh, Darren, I've got three for you, which I apologise for, because I know we've already gone in too long. Watching Kenneth Clark Civilization, the uh, landmark 1968-69 BBC television series where... Uh, the wonderful Kenneth Clark, descri- who describes himself as a stick in the mud, uh, takes us through uh, you know a millennia of uh, largely European uh, civilization. In some ways, perhaps it hasn't aged brilliantly, but in terms of its breadth, uh, his intellectual rigor, his sheer love of the subject matter, the gorgeous and glorious cinematography. It's hard to go past uh, as a piece of television. It's uh, it's really, really a magnificent piece of work. Listening, I've got uh, two quick recommendations. I've uh, discovered Empire, the podcast with William Dalrymple and Anita Anand. It's a few years old now or a couple of years old now, uh, but it's just wonderful. It goes through not just the British Empire, but also a host of other empires uh, in meticulous and vivid detail. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, There's also a great China Power podcast recently, the CSIS, with Pete Connolly, who uh, I don't know if you know, Darren, but he's he's completed a a PhD at at, uh, ANU not that long ago with Graham Smith, where he talks in great detail about China's strategy, uh, in particular in Melanesia. And it contains perhaps the best discussion, I think, over China's military ambitions and so-called dual-use facilities in the region. a really complex and I think misunderstood topic. I can highly recommend that. And for reading uh, The Five Eyes by Richard Kabaj, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. He used to be an Australian reporter. He is an Australian, but he used to report for the Australian. He's gone over to the UK and he's written a cracking history of The Five Eyes uh, over the last 70 years or so. It's a, a gripping read with some great interviews and anecdotes and a bit of hard news as well. But what have you got, Darren? I always enjoy your recommendations. I'm sure you've been a cracker. Just one uh, recommendation, uh, a reading. Um, it's a book called Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement by the historian Henry Reynolds. And one of the fascinating things it does is it looks into and interrogates how international law worked at the time of the arrival of the British to Australia and makes the argument that the sovereignty of First Nations people may well have been recognised by international law at that time. There's a lot in the book, and at a minimum, I think it's important to help understand the Uluru Statement from the heart um, and gain greater insight into the full spectrum of issues that Australian voters are facing with the upcoming voice recognition, um, which of course would give, as you said, constitutional recognition to First Nations people. So well worth it. Um, It was a birthday present. It's taken me a while to to get to it um, because my birthday was a few months ago, but very much worthwhile. Stephen, we've been here a very long time. We could go thrice as long and do a full Joe Rogan style podcast very easily, but we'll have to leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for coming back. And if you can, I will invite you again at some time down the track just to just to talk through things and, and have a good time. 
Darren, thank you. And thank you for pressing on with the pod. Um, I know that it's going to be inevitably different in the wake of Alan's passing, but I know that there are many people in the foreign policy community who are delighted to see you pressing on with it, who are really curious to see what you do next and who are looking forward to it as well. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World, a podcast written and produced by me, Darren Lim, with research and editing by Walter Konagi and theme music composed by Rory Stenning. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.